Hello and welcome to JHE Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain with JHE Ministries. So glad to have you join in with us today. And be sure to follow this podcast and receive notifications every time there is a new podcast. We are studying the book of Luke, and we finished chapter 2, and we just started to unpack chapter 3. And so far, we have been scratching the surface of John the Baptist and his ministry. John is the forerunner for the coming of the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to chapter 3, and let's begin with verse 5. Now in verse 5, we've already started in the middle of Isaiah the prophet, where he is speaking about John the Baptist. So picking up with verse 5. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. And likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than thy is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. I want to stop there for a moment, and let's go back up to verse 5. The effects of Christ's coming are described as follows. Every valley shall be filled. Those who are truly repentant and humble would be saved and satisfied. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. People like the scribes and the Pharisees, who were haughty and arrogant, would be humbled. The crooked places shall be made straight. Those who were dishonest, like the tax collectors, would have their characters straightened out. And the rough ways shall be made smooth. Soldiers and others with rough, crude temperaments would be tamed and refined. And in verse 6, a final result would be that all flesh, both Jews and Gentiles, 
would see the salvation of God. In Christ's first advent, we the offer of salvation went out to all men, though not all received him. When Christ comes back to reign, this verse will have its complete fulfillment. And then all Israel will be saved, and the Gentiles too will share in the blessings of his glorious kingdom. Everyone will see God's salvation. In verse 7, when the multitudes came out to John for baptism, John realized they were not sincere. Now the word multitudes or crowds represents an an unidentified or an assorted group of people who came out to the desert or to the wilderness to see John, where Matthew identifies them as Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, some were mere pretenders with no hunger nor any thirst for righteousness. It was these whom John addressed as offspring of vipers or brood of vipers. For the question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, implies that John had not done so. His message was addressed to those who were willing to confess their sins. Now, John's language is strong, as was that of Old Testament prophets who preceded him. He refers to God's anger, not God's kingdom, as Jesus did. His question suggests that while they're coming out to be baptized by him was the proper thing to do, their motives for doing it were in question. So in verse 8, if they really meant business with God, they should show that they had truly repented by manifesting a transformed life. Genuine repentance produces fruits. They should not start thinking that their descent from Abraham was sufficient, that that's all they needed. Relationship to godly people doesn't make a person godly. It just makes you related. Now, God was not limited to the physical descendants of Abraham to carry out his purposes. God could have taken the stones by the river Jordan and raised up children to Abraham. Stones are probably a picture of Gentiles whom God could transform by a miracle, a divine grace, into believers with faith like that of Abraham. This is exactly what happened. The physical seed of Abraham as a nation rejected the Christ of God, but many Gentiles received him as Lord and Savior and thus became the spiritual seed of Abraham. Mere physical descent from Abraham isn't important. God can create his own children out of stones, just as he can cause an inanimate stone to praise his son, if humans are going to remain silent. Continuing in verse 9, the axe laid to the root of the trees is a figurative expression, meaning that Christ's coming would test the reality of man's repentance. 
those individuals who did not manifest the fruits of repentance would be condemned. A tree that doesn't produce fruit should be chopped and removed to make way for one that will. The imagery may be intended to call to mind the figure of Israel as a fig tree or vine. Now the axe is at the root or at the root symbolizes an impending radical action, the destruction of the whole tree. The threat of judgment is heightened through the imagery of fire, a theme that's reintroduced in the reference to Jesus's ministry that we will see in the upcoming verses of 16 and 17. Taking us into verse 10, John's prophetic word of judgment elicits a response, first from the crowd in general and then from the unpopular and greedy tax collectors that we're going to see a little bit more here in verse 12. And then finally, verse 14, we're going to see from the soldiers. Stung with conviction, the people asked John for some practical suggestions as how to demonstrate the reality of their repentance. These conversations provide opportunity for some clear statements about social justice and responsibility. Verses 11 and 14, in these verses, John gives them specific ways in which they could prove their sincerity. In general, they should love their neighbors as themselves by sharing their clothing and sharing their food with all the poor. John is telling the crowd to share their clothes and food with the needy as evidence of repentance. Now the word tunic that is used, that was the short garment that was worn under their longer outer robe. And a person might have had an extra tunic for warmth. During the day it gets hot in the ancient times in that part of the world, but at night it gets cold, so they like to have an extra tunic for warmth. Or they just had it simply as a change of clothes. Now, as for the tax collectors, they should be strictly honest in all their dealings. Now, since as a class they were notoriously crooked, this would be a very definite evidence of reality. These tax collectors were part of a despised system. And of the three groups that are mentioned, they would have been considered most in need of repentance. The chief tax collector, uh, such as Zacchaeus, they bid money for their position. That's how they sometimes got their position. Their profit came from collecting more than they paid to the Romans. And so then they hired other tax collectors to work for them because their work and associations rendered them richly unclean. And because they regularly extorted money, these tax collectors were alienated from Jewish society and they were linked with or as being sinners. Now, while John shows social concern, he doesn't advocate or advocate overthrowing the system, but rather reforming these abuses that are going on. 
And finally, we want to talk about the soldiers. The soldiers on active duty were told to avoid three sins that it was common to men in the military. The first one was extortion. The second one, slander. The third one, uh, and the fourth one is discontent. Now, it's important to realize that men were not saved by doing these things. Rather, these were the outward evidences that their hearts were truly right before God. The soldiers were probably Jewish assigned to internal affairs. The very nature of their work gave them opportunity to commit the sins that were specified, for they could also use threats of reprisal to extort money from the people. After all, they were soldiers. They were not opposed to violence. But here again, John stresses ministering to the needs of others over personal greed. Now, in verses 15 through 17, we have a question. The question naturally arose whether such a radical prophet as John might be the Messiah. And I think this shows remarkable character on John's part because he could have posed as the Messiah and attracted a huge following of people. But instead, John compared himself most unfavorably with Christ. John responds in several ways. The Messiah is more powerful than John. The Messiah is worthy of such reverence that even the task of untying John's own sandals is more than John feels worthy of. And John explains that his baptism was outward and physical, whereas Christ would be inward and spiritual. The Messiah will baptize not with water in a preparatory way as John was doing, but Christ's baptism would be actually with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is, the coming of the Spirit is to have the effect of fire. Christ would baptize believers with the Holy Spirit, a promise that would take place at the day of Pentecost when believers were baptized into the body of Christ. Christ would, would baptize with fire, and baptism with fire is a baptism of judgment. Fire is an ancient symbol of judgment, a symbol of refinement and purification. And John is thus portraying the Holy Spirit as being active in saving, purifying, and judging. The Spirit had definitely, though not frequently, been associated with the Messiah, whose coming would mean also the availability of the Spirit's ministry. And John uses an agricultural image to explain all this. When grain is tossed in the air with a winnowing fork, and here the Lord is pictured as the winnower of the grain. He's the one throwing the grain up in the air. The lighter and heavier elements are separated with the heavier grain falling on the threshing, flo uh, threshing floor and then being stored for use. The chaff, when the winnower shovels the grain into the air, is blown to the sides of the threshing floor, and it's burned up. So one final note on this section before continuing further is this, that when John was speaking to a mixed multitude of believers and unbelievers, 
He mentioned both the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of fire like he does here. But when he speaks to just believers, he only speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he omits the baptism of fire because no true believer will ever experience this baptism of fire. So to finish up in verses 18 through 20. That John not only exhorted, exhort, 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 excuse me, or encouraged the people, but preached the good news. It, this shows that grace accompanied the warning to flee from judgment. It is noteworthy that Luke uses the word people here, a term usually reserved, reserved for a potentially responsive group. They apparently stayed on to hear more of John's message and heard the further proclamation of the good news. Uh, Luke is now ready to turn the spotlight from John to Jesus. Therefore, in these verses, he summarized the remainder of John's ministry and carries us forward to the time of his imprisonment by Herod. The imprisonment of John actually took place about 18 months later. Uh, John had rebuked, rebuked Herod for living an adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law. Uh, Herod is Herod Antipas that we had mentioned in verse 1. His wife, Herodias, had left his brother Philip to marry Herod. Uh, that marriage was one of his many sins, and Herod then crowned all of his other evil deeds with the climatic sin by shutting John up in prison. So Luke underscores both the boldness of John and the sickness of the society he calls into account. And verse 20 also indicates that John's ministry was completed before that of Jesus's, before Jesus's ministry began. We are out of time, but next time we'll pick this up with the baptism of Jesus. Until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.